Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta Braves had a homestand that ended on a positive note, much to the delight of fans. Today, we'll hear about an iconic photograph during a momentous occasion in baseball history when Atlanta Brave Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run to break the record set by Babe Ruth. Later this hour, Atlanta photographer Ron Sherman tells us the journey of that photo from the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium to Cooperstown, New York. First, a grim moment in history. May 31st marks 100 years since the horrific events of the Tulsa Race Massacre. In 1982, the historian Scott Ellsworth published a definitive volume on the subject, Death in a Promised Land. His new book on Tulsa is The Groundbreaking, an American City and Its Search for Justice. The author joins us now via Zoom. Scott Ellsworth, welcome to City Lights. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show. With Death in a Promised Land, you filled a major gap in our collective history by presenting the story of how mobs of white Tulsans looted and burned down the affluent Black community of Greenwood, described as the Black Wall Street. Hundreds of people lost their lives. More than a thousand homes and businesses were destroyed. And it's estimated that around 10,000 people were left homeless. Why didn't this event appear in our history books? Well, it didn't appear because people made sure that didn't happen. After the race massacre, the white politicians and businessmen who ran Tulsa realized they had a PR problem on their hand. So they decided that we're going to go ahead and and silence discussions of this. And they did it for about 50 years. Official records were destroyed. Incriminating articles and newspapers were cut out of bound volumes. Researchers who attempted to write about this uh, were threatened, some with their lives, others with their livelihoods. 
And uh, for nearly a half a century, Tulsa's white daily newspapers refused to write anything about it. Ironically, though, Lois, on the other side of the tracks in the African-American community, it was not discussed publicly either. And I think the thing to remember is that many of the massacre survivors suffered from PTSD and like Holocaust survivors, they didn't want to burden their children with these stories and grandchildren, these stories of these horrible things that they had experienced. So the massacre wasn't talked about for nearly 50 years, and it's taken us about 50 years to get the story out again. Mm. You mentioned a comparison to the Holocaust and the fact that African-Americans didn't want to talk about the Tulsa race massacre because of the pain that it just perpetuated for subsequent generations. There's a bit of a parallel in Atlanta history with the lynching of Leo Frank. Are you familiar with that story? Oh, yeah, I'm very much well familiar with that. And the response of the Jewish community here in Atlanta was similar. It's so complex on so many levels. How did this story remain alive? Well, it remained alive because of a remarkable and courageous group of massacre survivors and some white eyewitnesses as well who made sure that the stories were kept alive. And I ended up just being very lucky as a 21-year-old college student who had decided to write his senior thesis about the massacre. I came back home to Tulsa during the summer of 1975. And at first, I really had a difficult time doing any research. You know, records were missing. I couldn't figure out what went on. And then I got very lucky in that I did my first oral history interview ever with a gentleman named W.D. Williams, who was 16 at the time of the massacre. His parents were some of the most successful merchants in Greenwood. And uh, he agreed to meet with me in what we thought would be an hour interview lasted for four hours. And that was really the day that we understood how this entire thing happened. And then three years later, he introduced me to other massacre survivors who hadn't been interviewed by anyone. And uh, they were all adults in 1921. And it's really because of their stories and their willingness to share what happened allowed us finally to determine what exactly happened in Tulsa during those dark days. So your connection with the subject is deeply personal. You did your senior thesis on the Tulsa Race Massacre What impact did learning about the events have on the course of your life after that? Oh, it had an incredible course. You know, I grew up in Tulsa. So as a kid growing up in the 1960s, I would hear rumors that something had happened, that, uh, you know, a body's floating down the Arkansas River. My house was five houses from the river of machine guns, airplanes, and stuff like that. But you just couldn't find out anything about it. But certainly I was, and it it didn't have to be me. It just happened to be me. I ended up being a witness to these elderly survivors. They had not told this story outside of their own family. And I've always felt that my subsequent work over the years, I've often thought about them, about their courage and their openness you know, to tell this story and that I owe it to their memory to help make sure that others learn about what happened. 
I'm still astonished at the fact that this event did not appear in our public school history textbooks. But then again, I grew up in an era when our public school history textbooks never mentioned the Japanese internment camps. And you are filling such an important gap in our collective history. You write about another tragic event in Oklahoma, the 1995 bombing of the Murrah Federal Government Building in Oklahoma City. 168 people died in that tragedy. Would you talk about how the national coverage of that tragic event led to your connection with Bryant Gumbel and the Today Show? Yeah, that was really our big breakthrough. You know, when my Death in a Promised Land, that first book came out in 1982, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post, but that was really the only national attention given to it. But when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, the Today Show flew its entire New York-based crew out to Oklahoma City to broadcast live for a week. Brian Gumbel, African-American host of the Today Show, was approached by a former journalist and then state legislator representing the Black community in Tulsa, Don Ross. Don Ross went up to Brian Gumbel and said, you know, as horrible as this bombing is, there's another story that's never been given the attention it should. And Ross gave Gumbel a copy of Death in a Promised Land. And uh, about 10 days later, both Don Ross and I received calls from a producer at the Today Show saying on the 75th anniversary, the Today Show would do a story. And this was gigantic. I mean, we had never been given that attention at all. The Today Show did a wonderful story. They interviewed a number of survivors. They interviewed me. But as it got time for the lead up to the Today Show program, I realized that we could use that as a way to leverage other coverage. So I got on the phone and started making calls. And within a week, the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Public Radio, the Associated Press, they all agreed to do stories. And this was our big breakthrough in 1996. And then that had its own snowballing effect. Don Ross then took all of that press to the governor and state legislature and got them to create a riot commission the next year. And that's where the search for the mass graves began. And it, it's been slowly building since then. Yeah. Would you please talk about your work with the Tulsa Race Riot Commission, as it was first called, and then the Race Massacre Centennial? Yeah, sure. So I was hired by the, the Race Riot Commission, a state commission, to be their lead scholar. I had a wonderful team of scholars, but I decided that the one area we really needed to learn more about is how many people died during the massacre. We still don't have a good number on that. But I also began the search for the uh, unmarked mass graves of massacre victims. I went to the survivors first who asked me to do that. We interviewed over 300 people in Tulsa, cemetery workers, funeral directors, city employees, survivors, eyewitnesses. We identified three areas in town where we thought that massacre victims had been buried in unmarked graves. And then we got caught up in the politics of reparations. Our efforts were shut down. And then two years ago, the current mayor of Tulsa asked me to help restart those efforts. We've reassembled a, a team of archaeologists and forensic scientists. And uh, this past October, we finally discovered a unmarked 
mass grave at a Tulsa City Cemetery that we believe hold the remains of at least a dozen identified and unidentified African-American massacre victims. And on June 1st, we're going to begin exhuming that grave. I wondered if you could describe some of the personal feelings, some of the emotions being in the cemetery. It was an arduous process. You had geologists, seismologists digging and several false starts. What happened when you were able to behold that moment? Well, that was, as you can imagine, that was one of the most powerful, you know, somebody who's been off and on researching and writing about this story for 45 years. That was, of course, a powerful, unforgettable moment. And, you know, on the one hand, I was certainly thrilled and excited when these first outlines of these coffins, first two and then four and then six and then eight and then 12 happened. But it was also a very sobering experience. These are all murder victims who had been forgotten. These are our honored dead and they need to be treated with dignity and respect. But Lois, in all frankness, as soon as I saw them, I, I thought about those marvelous survivors who had opened up to me back in, in the 1970s and how happy they would be at this moment. Mm. So it, it was a very powerful moment for me. In North Tulsa, you write, the new catchphrase was no reconciliation without reparations. What was extraordinary about a lawsuit filed by Demario Solomon Simmons? So there have been efforts now, you know, for lasting more than 20 years to win some form of monetary restitution for massacre survivors and their descendants. So the original Tulsa Race Riot Commission, the state commission 20 years ago, recommended that restitution be paid to the 150 or so known survivors at that point. Unfortunately, the state of Oklahoma turned their back on a wonderful opportunity. And instead of paying any restitution, they gave the survivors each a gold-plated medal. Mm. A couple of years later, uh, Professor Charles Ogletree of the Harvard Law School filed a, a lawsuit trying to win restitution for survivors. That uh, lawsuit wound its way through the courts and made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but they would not hear the case. So earlier last year, a new lawsuit was filed by a, an African-American attorney in Tulsa, Demario Solomon Simmons, on behalf of survivors. And we have three, I believe, survivors alive at this point, descendants and other groups seeking restitution. And we'll just have to see how that court case goes. It's uh, Reparations in, in any form are a very complicated topic, but there's no doubt in my mind that they are deserved, well-deserved in the case of the Tulsa Race Massacre. But I think it's going to be a, a big hill to climb. Oh, yes. And given the state history, there's another layer. You have Native Americans, American Indians, who are resentful of some of the, well, certainly the implication, because you write about the fact that the African-Americans in Tulsa, many of those in Oklahoma, were originally brought as slaves. And then freedmen of, is it the Choctaw? Or Cherokee, Creek, Choctaw, the, oh, right, the major tribes from the Southeast. The, yeah, but then... You have 
people of American Indian descent saying, you want to talk about reparations? (laughs) What about the United States? No, certainly. You're exactly right. And I think it's important to remember that no white person ever spent any prison time for any of the murders or or robbery or arson that happened in 1921. The city government let the community down. So did the state government. So did the federal government, who did nothing. And also, a number of the black merchants in Tulsa had insurance policies, and all of the insurance companies turned them down. So I think that if there is going to be a form of restitution, which I believe there should be for uh, massacre survivors and their descendants, it will likely have to come through the federal government. But also, I think insurance companies, some of those insurance companies are still around. I think there's an opportunity for them to make good on promises that their forebears did not keep. Scott, what did it mean for you traveling to Tulsa for the excavations? I mean, this was before vaccinations. People were masked. You had to practice all sorts of safety protocols. Here you are late in 2020, and then January 6, 2021 happens, the insurrection at the Capitol following on the heels of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and too many others. It must have been dizzying for you to consider that history just was repeating itself. Well, certainly. There's no question that the murder of George Floyd and the response to his murder has launched what I describe as our country is in the age of re-evaluation where we're thinking about who our heroes are, who our heroes are not. We have statues coming down. We have buildings being renamed. And we have a lot of division over this. But I think that we're at a moment right now where we can perhaps be more open to an honest discussion of our history. American history is is what it is. America has given great gifts to the world, and those should be celebrated. But we've also done things that, in retrospect, were not right. And we can't just teach a sugar-coated version of our history. So I think we're at a moment now where hopefully people are more interested in learning the totality of our past. And only if we're honest about our past can we learn from it. And once we share a common vision of, of what our past is, I think that'll help us better as we try to chart a future for a nation. You write that history is not just a chronicle of events, rather a mirror of both who we are and who we want to be. Within that framework, what is the legacy of the Tulsa Race Massacre? Well, there's lots of legacies. One of the legacies is there has always been a great pride in the Greenwood community, even after the community was destroyed. There was a a feeling amongst Black Tulsans that we had defended our community. We had built it. We had fought for it. The vast majority did not leave the city, and they rebuilt it again. So I think that there is a tradition of perseverance and of courage. That certainly is one of the uh, legacies of it. Tulsa right now, it's, it's very curious. I mean, as John Hope Franklin, the historian, once said that Tulsa lost its sense of honesty. And that happened for a half century. And Tulsa is getting it back again. But that's a difficult process. People who have been taught one version of their history learned that actually something else happened. That's a difficult moment. You know, there's possibilities here. I think it's important to remember that 
Oklahoma is the most conservative state in the United States. And yet it's in Tulsa that, in a way, Tulsans are ahead of the curve in terms of trying to deal with this hidden past. And I think that perhaps there's some lessons that other communities can learn from as well. Author Scott Ellsworth is a professor of Afro-American and African studies at the University of Michigan. His new book is The Groundbreaking, An American City and Its Search for Justice. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Force of Habit is the name of a short film dedicated to Black people for whom daily existence is survival. The work features Keith J. Reeves of the Atlanta Ballet performing choreography by Claudia Schreier. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Would you give us a synopsis of Force of Habit, Claudia? Sure. Force of Habit is about navigating space in the world as a Black person and about the need to steel oneself against seemingly innocuous experiences and daily interactions. Um, The film follows a lone Black man as he begins his day, And we watch him as he strengthens himself and adds layers to ultimately have the courage, security, and the confidence to walk through the world, um, knowing that obstacles are everywhere. And so there are, there is stress and anxiety, even what appears to be the most simple of moments. Um, And, you know, the point is that this is any day and every day. uh, And that for what many of us you know, what might be a simple decision um, for others can be much more complicated, depending on how you look. I realize this is very abstract. What you do is very abstract. Can you bring us into your process of designing the narrative of force of habit through movement? Absolutely. You know, well, force of habit ultimately came about in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and last summer's protests. And it took me a long time to process and reflect on how I wanted to respond to my internal turmoil and the external turmoil of these times. And I also knew that in creating a project and a film that responded in some way, I wanted to make sure that the film's artists and collaborators reflected the breadth of voices that our project aims to represent. Um, And so in creating this film, 
Um, I worked closely with the director, Adam Barish, who's also my husband. And we um, wanted to find a way to, as you said, somewhat abstractly, um, but ever also very pointedly speak to these micro interactions that are perhaps not quite as uh, in your face about the violence that is so pervasive and, and so tragic. Um, but perhaps more for this, the, the, about the microaggressions and the microaggressions of what is otherwise so routine um, in one's day and how those otherwise invisible interactions can completely overcome and overwhelm a person. Yeah, there are moments when the character Keith, I, I, I don't know, do I call him Keith or your protagonist? He is, he is the man. Yeah, he is. He is, our, <laughs> he is exactly. He is the protagonist and he is our man. Okay. There are moments when pedestrians accidentally brush against his shoulder walking past him. There's one where a pedestrian actually seems to shove him out of the way. And there's another moment where Keith's movement is just so elegant and beautiful, and yet he's unnoticed by people who are gathering or passing nearby. Was that part of your statement? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, and thank you for, um, for for noticing those moments. And and I think that the subtlety of the interactions was something that we focused clearly on. And and, and Keith can speak to how detailed some of these motions were. And and you know we, we wanted the film to feel like it had no organic natural flow, but everything down, every single beat of the film is choreographed. And the way he grabs the the vitamin bottle, that's a way of, of stealing himself and strengthening himself against the world. The way he grabs the uh, the towel, the way he does his um, push-ups and, and pull-ups in the morning, the way in which he is either, he, he needs to make space for others versus others making space for him. That That's all uh, baked into the, the narrative of the piece. The music, Duke Ellington's single petal of a rose, is crucial to the emotional story told through the performance. Why did you choose that piece? I really love the single petal of a rose. You know, it felt appropriate to use music that was emblematic of the rich cultural history of Black contributions to the American sound. And you can certainly make the case that that was the most influential Black musician uh, in American history. His musical form of expression is jazz, which is Black music, of course. And this piece in particular has such a rich, somber quality to it. And as soon as I heard it, which um, you know was actually around the time of the protest last summer, I just knew that this is what it needed to be. It felt like it was... It, it, the, the film felt like it needed to be rooted in, in this piece.
this specific recording that we're using, it's an amazing rendition by a very talented pianist named Camilla Arku, um, who's also um, a black woman. And um, it just, I felt so deeply connected to this, this work that I, I, I felt compelled that it needed to be shaped around it. I'm wondering about how this music resonated with you. Is there any connection to the song's image of a rose petal falling and some of the gestures you perform? Um, I love that you ask that. I think when Keith and I were talking um, even months ago about what this work represented and what it could mean from the you know, the deeply personal and the, un the unveiling of oneself and the petals falling away and what that could represent to the, you know, the more macro representation of, of what the rose could be. I mean, yes, it is, it is whatever you see in it. And, um, and I love that you, that you asked that. Keith, what drew you to this project? Well, I like recently worked with Claudia at Atlanta Ballet last season during our September rep show. And it was like such an honor to work with a African-American choreographer and somebody on her level. So it was like really cool to get to meet her and get to be a part of her collaborative effort with like a group and just her as a choreographer and just seeing her process. But I mean, like I was just excited to work on anything right now during the time that we're in especially when she told me the storyline behind the idea of the video for the short film there seem to be many gestures in the performance that suggest pulling or being drawn along what did these movements mean to you for me, especially like as a Black man, the history behind my people in this country and how we as a people have been like pulled along on this weird journey with America and almost like used in a way and not really shown respect behind like all the things that our people have done for the, has done for this company and just other things. So I feel like it is an idea of like being pulled and pushed between two ideas, especially as a black person, because there are so many things in pop culture and, um, and in life that's confusing and really distracts you from who you are as a black person. So I feel like doing these small gestures and like the idea of me being pushed or like not being seen is sometimes what African-Americans go through on a daily basis. And are there ways in which some of the themes of force of habit relate to your experience as a Black dancer in a historically white-dominated medium, that being classical ballet? Oh, of course. And just everyday life like I'm 6'2 and sometimes like I get weird stares when I'm walking somewhere and there's like a certain idea of who color base wise should be there I don't know I've been through I mean you can ask any black person they feel like marginalized or used or not being used genuinely sometimes I feel like history speaks for itself and we 
all as a people have definitely gone through all of those things that Claudia has shown in this video. I mean, I haven't really seen a dance film really made like this where it is really talking about the Black experience presently right now. So I feel like she did a great job with that imagery. The imagery is gorgeous. And I have to say, I wondered if you actually descend the staircase from your apartment <laughs> in that elegant way you descend <laughs> in this day. <laughs> is, that the, is that the first time you've done that? Oh, no. I'm slipping <laughs> down the stairs. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, we, we create before Adam and I were able to arrive in Atlanta to finalize and film the piece, we created and rehearsed a large part of this online, like virtually on Zoom. And Keith was so generous with his time and his space. And we would, you know, set the camera at the base of his stairway in his actual apartment building. And he'd run up and down. And, and that's how we rehearsed for a long time was him going up and down his own stairwell. So, you know, if he wasn't doing it before, <laughs> he can do it now. All I can say is what lucky neighbors you have. <laughs> what was it like to interact with the structures of this city in this intimate way? I'm choreographer in residence at Atlanta Ballet, but I'm usually based in New York and have been staying in Chattanooga and Tennessee. So I'm a little bit all over the place. So to be able to get to know the city better, to get to know Atlanta better through creating the film has been quite a gift. And, you know, Atlanta has such a widespread, bold and like cultural forward population and, and, and like, you know, Black population specifically, it felt like Atlanta was a very appropriate setting for this kind of story. So to get to um, experience it in that way from the inside out was, was wonderful. Essentially, the city of Atlanta was your canvas or set design, I guess. What made you decide on the particular backdrops you chose? It was important to us to show a contrast between the the colder, more tightly wound feeling of city life so that that could be, um, you know, in, in contrast with the, the open field and the sense of freedom that, that Keith finds with the character when he is finding himself, not finding release necessarily, but finding another element of himself that he can then move back to, to, to gird himself against the world. And so we found um, a beautiful setting on Arabia Mountain in the field that Keith navigated with such grace. <laughs> uh, it's not easy to dance in that field, <laughs> but he did. He oh, did. No. He did so. No, he so did so hard. well. Um, and it, I, you know, it's the, it's the the apex of the film, if you will. And we see Keith as he sees himself for a brief moment in time before we're brought back to quote unquote reality. Um, and so it was important to us to show those different locations for what they represent. Could I say one more thing? I wish you would. Yeah. Okay. So I love working on this project, especially because it was so based around the city. Because like me go going into adulthood, I've kind of grown up in this city. So the specific places where we've shot have been like certain areas where places that were very familiar to me. Like I used to, when I first came to Atlanta Ballet for the conservatory program, um, I would catch a bus from McDonough, Georgia, all the way to Atlanta at like 6 a.m. in the morning. And one of the places that we shot was a place that I used to get dropped off at. 
So there are so many different areas and things that were implemented in this video that were very personal to me. And like we shot in my apartment, which was very personal and fun to do. I've always wanted to work on a project that showed the city in a great way um, with a great story. So this project really did that for me as an artist. And also just getting to work with Claudia again on such an intimate level was really great, especially for me right now. Like I'm trying to like choreograph as well, but like being with her and seeing how she works and how if something doesn't work, she'll play with it a little bit more or like scrap it. There's so many great things and so many great blessings that came with this whole process. So I'm very grateful. Ultimately, do you feel the message of the film is hopeful? Uh, Yes, especially right now during the time that we're in. I feel like right now in history, we're in a time where I feel like African-Americans and people of color are really seeing their strength and their power as a people, especially being in Atlanta, seeing all of the great, young, innovative African-Americans and people of color who are moving here for the arts and for politics and everything else. It is a really like vivid image of the hopefulness and freedom that we will hopefully get through this upcoming journey and the rest of life. Hopefully we all come together and really see the beauty in each other and not take that for granted. Atlanta Ballet dancer Keith Reeves with Atlanta Ballet choreographer in residence Claudia Schreier. The new short film Force of Habit can be streamed on YouTube. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Thanks to the brilliance of Hank Aaron, the date, April 8th, 1974, marks a historic achievement. It was on that date Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run to break Babe Ruth's record. Ron Sherman was among the 100-plus assignment photographers at Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium that night. The photo he took for UPI was sent around the world and has its own story. Ron Sherman is with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm glad to be here. Ron, how did you first get involved in photography and in particular newspaper photography? Well, my first published photo was in junior high school. It was a Polaroid picture I had shot of of a meeting. Uh, But uh, I got involved in newspaper photography because I used to uh, freelance uh, in high school for the... uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cleveland Press, and Cleveland News covering football. And then the editors started saying, well, can you cover a second game? We like, you know, more pictures. And my best day was uh, where I had two pictures published in each of the three newspapers. And I think I made a total of $60 that day. And that that was good money back in 1958. And that started my career in newspaper photography. And uh, eventually the Army decided they wanted me. So I spent a year in Vietnam and 
coming back. My mom said, well, you know, I don't know if this uh, photography gig will be good for you. Why don't you go to graduate school? So uh, I got an assistantship at uh, Syracuse and went to graduate school. And in intermediate time between uh, Vietnam and graduate school, I got married. And uh, we decided we needed to move someplace warmer than Syracuse, New York, which was cold up there. And we came down to Atlanta in uh, 71. It was 70 degrees. Dogwoods were out, the azaleas were out, and it was an easy sell to move down here. Would you talk about the day Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record? That was an interesting in, interesting day. I uh, didn't realize what was going to happen, but um, I, I was uh, on assignment for UPI, and I decided uh, basically they let me go where I wanted to go <clears throat> as a freelance photographer. I, I call that self-unemployed because you were employed by various clients and, and publishers. And then when the assignment was over, you were unemployed. So uh, a standing joke, but it, in truth, that's what it really was about. And I picked the third base side, which uh, there was a uh, photo box between home plate and third. And it was a good view of when Hank would hit his, uh, uh, he was right-handed, so he would end up looking towards towards our side of the of the dugout. We were there early on. We were there about two hours before the game to start. And there was a lot of people there, celebrities. Uh, the governor was there and uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was there and uh, a number of other celebrities uh, talking and, and chatting and stuff like that. Then the game started and um, his first time at bat, uh, he hit a couple of foul balls, and I don't remember. I don't think he got on base, but uh, every time he swung the bat, somebody took a picture. There were probably 100 credential photographers there. And then the second at-bat is when he hit the home run, and uh, I had my color camera up to, to shoot color of him hitting the ball. Everybody in the, in the universe uh, got that picture. And then I picked up my other camera, which had black and white film in it, and I just followed him around the bases. And through my lens, I saw something. Uh, the, the two boys came out there, and I, uh, I kept taking pictures, taking pictures until uh, he came down to home plate. And then all the, every, all the teammates greeted him uh, uh, so that he could hit the, the, the home plate and uh, celebration. And uh, then they brought the ball in from the outfield, and so we got pictures of, uh, of him holding the ball up, and uh, then the game continued. Uh, I didn't think much about the picture until uh, UPI had a darkroom there, and they were processing the film. They came up with the photo, looked at it, they said, this is a keeper. Would you describe that photo? The picture turned out, and I, I looked at my negatives again recently, and I only had this one shot, one image of the two boys tapping him on the shoulder. As he came around second base to third base, there was an opening there where I followed him around, and they touched him on the shoulders, and then they, they moved on. So these teenagers rushed onto the field to yes. congratulate her. Yes, they did. And that's all, you know, that's all it was about. They did hold these guys. They, did, they didn't arrest them. They kept them uh, isolated until the end of the game and then uh, let them go because they realized it was just a prank and, and there was no harm, no foul kind of thing. So the picture editor at UPI transmitted the photo and um, a quick end of the rest of the story is 
no one knew for 40 some years who made the photo because UPI used initials RS for the guy who sent transmitted the photo slash RS for me as the photographer. What amazed me was I checked a few years later about the photo because I was surprised not to see it in Life Magazine or in Sports Illustrated. And I checked the archives, the AP archives, um, Life Magazine archives, all the agencies that, that I knew about, and no one had the photo. And that to me was astonishing. So it took 45 years for you to be credited with taking that photograph. Yes, and the only reason that it happened was at, right after the event, I was uh, friends with the executive picture editor at UPI. He called me up and said, Ron, we want to borrow the negative, make some large prints. So I cut the frame before and the frame after, uh, 36 exposure roll, and sent it up to them. Totally forgot about it. I mean, when you're out working as, as a photographer, a freelance photographer especially, you're not sure what, what's happening next. And so the next job comes up, and that's what you're, you're zeroing in on. You don't worry about what you've already done. Ten years later, I'm looking at a TV Guide magazine that had uh, Oprah Winfrey on the cover where they had supposedly put her head on somebody else's body for the cover shot, which made a lot of controversy back then. And I opened it up, and there was a top 100 news events for the whatever it was, the last decade or, or however long it was. And uh, Hank Aaron was number 10 with my photo that said Bettman Archives Corbus. I says, hey, uh, I ought to find out what, uh, what's going on with, with that photo. Why do they have it? Well, as it turned out, UPI sold their archives to Bettman Archives and Bettman Archives, which is a photo agency, Corbus then bought the, that. And what happened was my negative ended up with these agencies. So once I realized that, I was able to um, impress upon them that that was my negative. Because as working for UPI back then, um, I kept the copyright on all my photos. UPI didn't own it. I was a freelancer being paid as a freelance basis. If UPI didn't own the photo, why were you not credited? Well, because the picture that went out just had my initial on there. And, and was that common? Oh, yes. Oh. Yeah. AP, and uh, when they sent out their captions, they did put their photographer's name, you know, photo, AP photo, photo by so-and-so. But UPI, back as far as long as I remember, were only initials used. So th the idea of intellectual property eh, didn't exist then? Not so much? Oh, yeah, it did very much. In fact, uh, I was um, unrepentant in my uh, exercise of my uh, pictures even back then about somebody using my photo uh, without payment. So, But it, it was, um, in a way, a lot easier because there, there weren't pictures on the Internet that people could just borrow or steal or whatever, however you want to call it. It wasn't on the front of my mind about what was going on until I realized that, hey, I never got that negative back. I, I sure would like to get it back. So I got it back. And fast forward, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jay Kaufman, was also at that event. He was also shooting for UPI. And he calls me up and says, hey, Ron, your photo is hanging in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Say what? And so... Um, 
he put me in touch with the archivist there that he was talking with because he was he was trying to get some of his photos at the, in the Hall of Fame, and we had a discussion and and I said, well, how how did Baseball Hall of Fame get the photo? And the archivist went down and pulled a picture out, and there was Corbis stamp on the back. So they bought a eight by ten print from uh, Corbis to, for their archives, and at one time they blew it up to a five foot by eight foot. And Jay says, you know the picture doesn't, it, it's it's blown up from a really small file. It really doesn't look that great. So I made a deal with um, the Baseball Hall of Fame and if they would publicize that Ron Sherman took that photo, uh, I would get a high-res photo uh, image to them that they could then redo the, uh, the picture that was hanging there. And they did that and they sent me a copy of the picture hanging with a little plaque that said photo by Ron Sherman. And uh, so the rest was history, but it took till well, October of 2019 to um, get that, that credit for it. Really nothing's happened until, I was written up in a couple of magazines, but nothing really until now that Hank has passed. And um, there's been a couple of stories written about that picture and, and my photo. Ron, when you were developing that photo, in the dark room, did you realize you'd captured something extraordinary? Not at the time. It was just an another good photo that I was pleased with. The editor, you know, deciding what got sent out and what didn't get sent out, uh, realized right away that it was, you know, it was a good photo, and uh, it really didn't dawn on me until the realization was. No one else got that photo. I mean, I recently saw a Sports Illustrated photo, but it only had one, of the, it was in color. It only had one of the boys near him. The other boy was a few feet behind him, and that was as close as anybody got. Sure. But, you know, with these horrific things we've learned about death threats and, and threats of harm to his family, um, first, it's amazing that two random teenagers made it onto the field. Hank Aaron doesn't look upset. I guess I guess they were <laughs> conveying that they were thrilled and not threatening. Exactly. I we found out later that there were I don't know how many uh, dozens of um, plainclothes police. Um, Georgia State Police, uh, City of Atlanta. Um, I think even the FBI had uh, agents throughout the stadium. But yeah, that was um, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, and then they just went on their merry on their merry way, and the game went on. And um, as a, as the official said later on, after they let him go, it was no harm, no foul, and uh, and something those boys will remember uh, for for the rest of their lives. And for the rest of your life, will you feel excited that your photo of this historic accomplishment hangs in the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum? Yes, that's. <laughs> I have another photo from Atlanta that's in the African American Museum in, in D.C. Uh, but uh, but this one outranks anything because. You know, the, the thing is, photos printed in publications are fleeting. 
I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of photos published in magazines, annual reports and stuff mm. like that. And especially in a newspaper, you know, we read it one day and it's in the birdcage the next. And this one will be there, I guess, as long as the Baseball Hall of Fame is, uh, is open because his accomplishment will not fade. Atlanta-based photojournalist Ron Sherman, his iconic photo of Hank Aaron is on display at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. You can see the photo and find more information about Ron Sherman on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., a conversation with Eddie Ninevolt, a young Atlanta blues artist who reveres the elders. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.